Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Financial Times. We value your feedback. Please go to ft.com forward slash alpha survey and fill out a short survey. Hello, and welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Shannon Bond. On today's show, what happens after a December rate rise? Many economists expect the Fed will announce it will raise interest rates before the end of the year. I'll be joined by U.S. Capital Markets correspondent Eric Platt to talk about what monetary policy changes economists are expecting to see as we move into 2016. Then, the American middle class is shrinking. New data from the Pew Research Center suggests that globalization and advancements in technology have driven a wedge between people in what was once the majority class. I'll talk to two of our editors in Washington. Plus, economist Claudia Golden on the last chapter of gender convergence in the workplace. Let's get on with the show. It's the most wonderful time of the year for Fed watchers again. On Wednesday, Fed Chairwoman Janet Yellen and the Federal Open Market Committee will announce if the central bank will raise interest rates for the first time in nearly a decade. Eric Platt, U.S. Capital Markets Correspondent, is here with me in the studio. Hi, Eric. Hey, Shannon. How's it going? Good. The Fed funds rate has been at a record low of zero for nearly a decade. Uh, That's like practically the entire time I've been at the FT. So you've been speaking to some economists recently. Is a December rate rise in the cards? Is it all but certain? December rate rise is all but certain. I think that's those are the exact words. Uh, so far, every economist I've spoken to, besides one, has said December is the date. They are all betting that it's a 25 basis point rise, which is a quarter of a percentage point. Uh, and they think it happens uh, next Wednesday. So that seems to suggest that there is a bit more positive feeling about the health of the U.S. economy, right? What m- might be reassuring the Fed? and the economists that you've spoken to, um, that a rise is in order. So a lot of the economists we've been talking to, we've been asking, what are the odds that a recession happens next year or the year after? What would force the Fed to come back to zero and stimulate? And almost none of them think in a, have in a majority opinion that recession is on the horizon. Uh, only one that we've surveyed so far has said, you know, the Fed's going back to zero. They think, get off the zero bound. So if there's a crisis in the future, we can come back down. Interestingly, people have only recently come to the view again that, oh, Fed hiking is good for the economy. It means that there's strength in the underlying uh, business activity, what we're seeing, jobs growth, retail spending, kind of the core group, even though the figures have been kind of lackluster. But there's not that fear that that if rates do go up, that will grind everything to a halt and like send us back into another recession. No, I think even if the Fed makes a policy mistake, I don't think anyone thinks it's the 25 basis point move because it seems so... I just want to say like inconsequential. The dollar. Well, right. It is. I mean, it's a, it's not a very big move. I mean, it's just a quarter point. Right? No, it's I not. Mean, and it gets more interesting. And this is where when we've been surveying people, there's been such a wide dispersion so far of how much does the Fed go in 2016 and how much do they go in 2017? Some economists say they are one and done. This is it. 
Others say we're getting four hikes next year and we might get six in 2017, which is kind of surprising because that is much more aggressive than the market is currently pricing. Right. So that's sort of we're extending our timeline out now about what to worry about. So what about long-term rates? So once again, this is where we see a lot of dispersion. The Fed itself has said that long-term rates should be around three to three and a half. So we should start seeing U.S. Treasury yields start to rise. Uh, the economists we've hold have offered really varying views, some as high as four, some as low as two, which would indicate that yields could go anywhere. So heading into next Wednesday, um, equity markets have been stabilizing, but corporate bond markets have seemed a little jittery. Any sense that this is a sign of some other types of worries? Yeah. So one of the big things in markets is a lot of times fixed income markets, credit will lead the equity indices. So if there's, uh, you know, investors getting nervous and they're selling bonds of either investment grade or junk rated companies, maybe a few months later, you'll see the sell off in equities. And there's, there's been a divergence. Uh, investment grade credit has widened out a bit. And there's been some of the sell off. Junk rated bonds, particularly because of the energy issues, you know, the drop in oil prices have sold off massively. And a lot of investors point to the fact that in the past when this has happened, there's been a recession on the horizon. Uh, and in the past when it's happened, it's not just energy. It's, you know, okay, it starts in energy or it starts in whatever sector and it moves to retail and media and pharma. Oh, by the way, we've seen all those things already. <laughs> So we think that companies will probably continue to, to sell bonds despite these potential concerns from investors. Yeah. One of the things I loved recently about when I was talking to some investors, they're like, yeah, we've been pushing back on these deals, but companies have not gotten the message. <laughs> and we've seen a record pace of investment grade issuance this year. Talking to bankers and investors, I think that's going to continue next year because again, 25 basis point move higher in, in rates, that doesn't stop me from issuing a $10 billion bond if I'm Pfizer or Verizon or McDonald's. So how are markets positioned heading into this decision next week? So one of the most interesting things that we saw recently was uh, a report JP Morgan put out, and they said there are about $1.1 trillion in options contracts uh, for the December period. And funny enough, the December period expiry date, when you have to decide to exercise the options, is less than 48 hours after the Fed. Now, a lot of those options are put options, which gives the holder a right to sell the stock or in this case, the S&P 500. And they're positioned just below where the market is currently trading, between like 1900 and 2050. I think the S&P is around 2070 right now. So let's say the market were to drop substantially on Thursday. If those holders decide to exercise their options, and it's about $200 billion in contracts there, you could see the market sell off substantially following the Fed. And it could just be an acceleration made worse by these options contracts. Uh, JP Morgan strategist said, Oh, that's not, you know, that's really a worst case scenario. We don't think it'll happen because the Fed will likely be dovish, but something to keep on your radar if you see a massive sell off after the Fed, uh, continue into Thursday and Friday. Yeah. That risk is definitely there. Thanks so much, Eric. Our listeners can read the full results of our uh, discussions with economists this weekend on FT.com. Thanks for having me, Shannon. America's middle class has shrunk from less than half of the country's population for the first time since the start of the 1970s. Technology and globalization have driven a wedge between the winners and losers in American society, hollowing out what was once the majority class. This is all according to new data from the Pew Research Center. Two FT journalists, U.S. economics editor Sam Fleming and world trade editor Sean Donnan, worked closely with Pew to analyze the data. And Sam and Sean join me on the line from Washington. Hi, guys. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Shannon. Hello. So um, first of all, how are we defining the middle class? Like how does Pew and, and you and in the piece that you've done, what, what does the middle class mean? 
Well, Pew divides the U.S. Uh, adult population into five uh, different en- income tiers, uh, and the middle they define as uh, two-thirds uh, to 200% of U.S. median uh, income. So if you're a three-person household, that means you're earning anywhere from $41,869 to $125,608. Obviously, you can define the middle class in any number of ways. Um, there are other, other income um, income definitions which other people use, other academic institutions use, uh, and you can also do it in a more um, in a more touchy feely way, I suppose. You know, is it white collar America? Is it uh, the portion of America which can afford to own its own home? There are any number of ways of defining the middle class, but this is the way Pew does it. And actually, there's I mean, there's a really important point here as well, which is this is probably the broadest measure on the income side of the American middle class out there. So going anywhere from from forty thousand to one hundred twenty five plus thousand captures just a huge segment of America. But even that segment of America has 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 shrunk, and 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 that's and the reasons for that are where it gets really interesting. Right. So so we see now this new data. It's less than half of the adult population that now fits within that group. So just to give some context, how big was it at the peak? So back in the uh, beginning of the 1970s, it was 61% of the adult population. So it's really shrunk quite steadily. And that's one of the findings from Pew. Uh, this isn't a sudden uh, result of the Great Recession. It's not a sudden result of deindustrialization, for instance, in the 1980s and 90s. This is something that's been happening for a really long time. And what are the most significant factors then along the way, if, if it's not just sort of the things that have been more immediately brought to our attention, so, like the Occupy movement? So actually, so this is the really striking thing that comes out of this research is that actually, perhaps the bigger reason for the middle class shrinking is, or the biggest reason for the middle class shrinking is actually that a lot more Americans than you would have thought have gotten richer and moved beyond the middle class and up the income ladder. Uh, and that's really surprising and it's kind of counterintuitive given what we get out there in the popular discourse. Now, clearly there's, uh, there's people who have fallen out of the middle class, uh, but there's something like 50 million adults in America now living in households earning more than $125,000 a year. That's one in five American adults. So that's a pretty striking number. Yeah, that's a big, big shift. Uh, so on the on the lower end or on the sort of the lower wage job end, since the 1970s, there's been obviously this expansion in globalization, the automation of many manufacturing positions sort of that would have been, you know, factory jobs. Uh, what kind of professions have, did you guys see were most affected? Well, one of the important things that comes out of this um, is uh, education and the importance of college education. That was a really big, one of the very big dividing lines in terms of uh, people's fortunes. Um, if you if you don't have a college education, you've actually fallen down the income brackets over this period, whereas uh, people with a college education or more have really held their own. And so that's all- even factoring in the, the the effect of like the cost of what it costs of what you have to pay for college in the U.S. Exactly. Exactly. So, so this is an important uh, point that uh, college education really is paying off. And this reflects the premium that employers are putting on high skilled uh, workers. And that's also, uh, as you suggest, reflected in those occupations that have done well, rising in income status amongst those that have done very well, uh, executives, managers, perhaps not surprisingly, people with professional qualifications, technicians, medical professionals, all doing very well, whereas more administrative roles haven't done 
done so uh, well. Operators haven't done well. And interestingly, teachers haven't done well either. And other public sector workers potentially, right, with the, the budget cuts that we've seen? Yeah, well, we think that one of the reasons teachers haven't done well is because of uh, the squeeze on state and local uh, budgets, which has been reflected in the teachers' profession. Certainly separate figures, which aren't from Pew, show that uh, in the decade up to 2013-14, in real terms, teachers' incomes have, have fallen about uh, 4%. So they've seen a decline there. So as part of this big package that you've done, um, you both traveled to a bunch of different parts of the country to meet with people who may be now or may have been considered middle class. Can you tell us um, some of those stories that you, you came across? The one that really sticks with me is Amber Barnard, who's a 37-year-old mother of three who works for Cummings in uh, Seymour, Indiana. She's uh, a slight uh, blonde lady, and she builds big, huge diesel engines uh, in in this plant. But what, one of the things that's, that, that's really striking is you go to a town like Seymour, and you discover a place that actually is doing pretty well, uh, uh, oddly. I mean, this is, the, the again, the counterintuitive point. Uh, it's the opposite of the manual manufacturing story we normally hear about America. It's a place that's managing to su- survive. And Amber is probably the most effusive member of the middle class that I met uh, in, 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 in my travels. You know, a lot of people who actually materially are doing better than, 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 than Amber in terms of uh, their income are uh, much more pessimistic about the state of the middle class uh, than she is. And to me, that, that, that's a really interesting thing. And, and it's not just about, about individuals, but it's also about communities. Uh, if you can adapt to the, to the new economy and if you can take advantage of, 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 of where things are, are, are doing well, you can actually have a very good life uh, in America, even on, 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 on the factory floor. But you do get this very divided sense of, of, of the U.S. economy when you travel around. Sam, did you beat anyone that you felt sort of encapsulated um, some some point in this research? Sure, a, a number of people, but one uh, one to bring out would be Will, Will Hansman, who's um, the chief uh, technology officer at a, uh, a startup in Chicago called Uptake, which specializes in gathering huge amounts of data and analyzing it to try and predict failures in uh, in in machinery and other other um, operations of big companies. I guess I was just struck by the sense that if you are in one of these high-tech industries with the kind of skills that someone like Will has, where he's got a, a you know a degree in aerospace engineering uh, from University of Illinois, uh, has spent his career in various corners of the technology um, sector, you're in a really excellent position right now. And that was reflected in his own assessment, I thought, of how the middle class is doing, where he basically thinks the middle class in the US is extremely resilient and uh, uh, and thriving, in his words. That is not the kind of message you get, uh, on the other hand, from a teacher such as Julie Ruin, who I also spoke to, uh, based in Virginia, who feels that uh, she has to have a second job in order to make ends meet, uh, even as a teacher in what should be a kind of core middle class profession. Another teacher I spoke to, Tina Williams, also based in Virginia, also has a second job working in a department store. So these are kind of the bedrock of the middle class, but people who don't feel they've done very well. Yeah. And, and, and I think it you know, should be absolutely clear. It, it, it's, and I was talking about communities that adapt very well. I also, as part of the series, traveled to a place called Eden, North Carolina, which is a community that just has not adapted uh, at all to, to, to modern realities. It's a place where one in four people live in, 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 in poverty. It's a real 
kind of great example uh, or depressing example of, of deindustrialized uh, America there. And there you run into people who are uh, holding down five jobs to make uh, a, a wage that is still uh, below median income and really struggling with huge social problems as well. So a huge divide. Now, you mentioned, I mean, obviously, high skilled technical workers um, have, have benefited. Are there other groups of people where who have been less touched by this shift or, or have benefited, whether it's sort of by employment or by age? No, I mean, I think that's that, that, that's that's part of the key. And that's part of the key story here is, I mean, and, and we've known this, but it's good to be a baby boomer. Yep. Yep. What about the younger generation? What about sort of young college graduates, uh, people starting families, finally, the the elusive millennials that we love to talk about? Well, in terms of income status, and, and the way we talk about income status in this report, or Pew talks about it, is is looking at whether people have, a larger number of people have moved up the income ladder to higher income tiers or or down the income ladder to lower tiers. The, the, um, the, the real declines you've seen have been in the younger generations, as well as uh, in people who don't have college uh, educations. Those have really been uh, the losers. I think the other point to make about the older generation is they have seen a lot of upward mobility in terms of income since 1971, and indeed in, in the current uh, century as well. That doesn't change the fact that if you are over 60 Five, you're still more likely to be a lower income person than the overall uh, US population, reflecting the fact that a lot of people who are in their 60s and above are living on quite a modest income, even if that has improved over the decades. And, and they're hanging on in the workforce for longer. I mean, that's another thing. I mean, he, uh, Sam uh, went down to, to Florida and in Sar- Sarasota, Florida, he in- interviewed A.V. Osterman, who's this wonderful, chipper, uh, 75-year-old office manager. And she talks about, you know, being a member of the middle class being happy. At the same time, she's 75 years old and still working. Right. Well, uh, on this podcast, and we've talked about this, what's going to happen, sort of the technology that uh, will enable people to work longer, but also clearly people, a lot of people are going to have to work longer. Um, so you guys are both in DC, you kind of can't quite escape the the uh, gravity, the pull of the presidential campaign. Um, it seems that, you know, this kind of shift that we've seen creates this void uh, where Republicans and Democrats alike, um, the presidential candidates can fill with promises of how they're going to help Americans, whether it's through tax breaks or higher wages. I mean, what do you make? What will, will this add anything or provide and shed any light on the political discourse? Well, I guess it, it confirms in a sense what, what you hear from both sides of the political divide, the sense that the American middle class is under pressure and is being squeezed badly. You hear that from Trump, who's been talking about uh, cutting taxes for the middle class, while of course this tax package also includes um, some beneficial uh, moves for richer Americans, uh, all the way over to Bernie Sanders, who's talking about universal health care and other things, again aimed at a free college education, aimed at helping uh, the middle class to get back some of, the, of those gains that it's lost over the past few decades. So I think this is a, going to be one of the central theme. I mean, security is obviously going to be a huge theme in the presidential debates coming up. Um, next year. But I think uh, the middle class in terms of the economics of America is going to be the central theme. Thank you both for joining me. Uh, Our listeners can follow the series, including video sketches and all of your articles at ft.com slash middle class. Sam, Sean, thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. The gender pay gap expands 
enormously in the first 15 years that people are out. And the second point is that the gender earnings gap is considerably wider, like very much wider, in certain occupations than it is in others. That's Harvard economics professor Claudia Golden. She's talking to Cardiff about the gender pay gap across different occupations in the latest episode of Alpha Chatterbox. It's the subject of a paper she wrote called A Grand Gender Convergence, The Last Chapter, in which she argues that the roles of men and women have essentially converged in the workplace during the last century. Yet major changes in the way work is incentivized are needed in order for men and women to achieve real equality, or what she calls the last chapter of this convergence, in the labor market. Here she is on the idea of time and flexibility at work. So my theory was that what was going on is that certain jobs, certain positions were more nonlinear than others. And that if um, so, uh, if, if a, an individual uh, needs to have more temporal flexibility, so it's not just the number of hours, it's when you work your hours. I want to work at two in the morning, not at two in the afternoon. But if I'm working for a consulting firm and I'm not there at 2 in the afternoon, then I won't be able to have the 2 p.m. meeting with the team of individuals who have to be together, okay? So I am not being afforded temporal flexibility. If I take it, I'm going to be put in a position where I'm going to be earning a lot less. I'm going to get clients that are less demanding, for example. There are a hundred different reasons why uh, one might find these nonlinearities or this cost of this amenity that's worth more for individuals like women who have demands outside their occupation. So that was the idea that what is going on, what is penalizing women disproportionately is due to the high cost in certain occupations like law, like corporate and finance, less so in others like certain health occupations and certain tech and science occupations, this cost, this very, very high cost of this amenity called temporal flexibility related to these nonlinearities in in pay. So armed with that theory, I then go back into the labor force and see whether these occupations really have these nonlinearities or occupations have evolved so that they are more what we call female and family friendly without the costs of, of sometimes friendliness has costs with lower costs to it. And that is the essence of what must be in the last chapter, that we must reduce the cost of the amenity temporal flexibility. You can download the full Alpha Chatterbox episode with Claudia Golden now. For this week's follow-up, as always, I'm joined by Amelia Mahasek. Hi, Amelia. Hello, Shannon. So last week, we had a lot of different things. You did have a real variety of uh, things. So first up, BlackBerry, the book about about the sort of demise, really, of BlackBerry, um, although it's still trying to struggle along and compete with Apple. The most interesting thing, as always, I know I bang on about this, is the human element of business. And so I really was fascinated about the tale of these 
to men who really were the ones that were behind this, you know, rise, this extraordinary company um, mm -hmm. and that interplay between the engineer who was the tech brains, whose parents, you know, helped him fund the company in the first place, immigrant background, you know, born in Istanbul, uh, you know, won a science prize for reading every book in the library when he grew up. And then this business brain, Jim Basili. So Michael Azaridis is a tech guy and Jim Basili with the business brain who was entrusted to kind of make this thing grow and grow and grow. So I thought that was really interesting. And so my takeaway from that was, you know, we must do more corporate stories about the the humans behind the machine. Right, they're sort of the, the personalities and the culture. Yeah, because quite often generally in business journalism we treat companies as though they're run by a sort of spreadsheet right. and actually they're run by people with all kinds of flaws and and traits and genius and all that <laughs> kind of thing so so that's what I really liked about that I thought Amy did a great job of pulling all of that out um, yes more interviews by Amy yes <laughs> and the then we segue to the renminbi and why it's a reserve currency or why it doesn't matter that it's a reserve it currency it's a reserve currency it matters to the chinese and uh but my ears pricked up when i heard that you know even the australian dollar and the canadian dollar are not included in the reserve currencies even though they are held more widely than right. the renminbi but uh, so that was really interesting cuz because normally that's such a geeky topic currency trading yeah no but i think i mean they, they, they sort of they made it explicable <laughs> exactly those sort of politics behind it all is yeah. fascinating and i was left by the third segment on chicago not being very welcoming to george lucas about his donation there thinking about why san francisco had rejected him and what the sort of dynamics are in san francisco right the um, old money new money split the, the politics right. of San Francisco, just as much as the politics of Chicago. Right, because he was so essentially the, the tech billionaires were all backing the Lucas Project, but sort of the powers that be, the, the old money that I think is more more controlling of the Presidio Trust um, wasn't interested in it. So It's funny because I don't think of uh, San Francisco as having any old money. <laughs> I think it's all new money. Well, but it's like it's been, it's been so many cycles of new money, right? Like it's always been a boom. It's like gone through these boom cycles. And so that at some point that becomes old money, right? Exactly. The, the robber yeah. barons, the railroads, all of those things. Yeah. Well, I think I remember from going to San Francisco and looking up a bit of the history that, you know, in the old trading days when it was all shipping, uh, yeah. it was similar sort of culture, yeah. boom and bust. Um, so I thought that was great. Thanks, Amelia. Thank you, Shannon. Have you been reading this week? I've been reading a couple of different things, but actually what I want to recommend um, is a movie, uh, The Big Short. Which which was a book. Which was a book, which is also a great book. So first of all, yes, I recommend that as a book. <laughs> um, I'd read that book a couple years ago when it came out by Michael Lewis. Um, and now it's been made into a movie, which is um, coming out or you know, coming out, I think, more widely, maybe a little down the line. But, but you had a sneak preview. Um, but yeah, I got to go to a, an early screening because I got to talk to the director this week uh, for a, a, week, a piece that will be in this weekend's FT, which is really fun. So the director, Adam McKay, probably best known as a collaborator with Will, Will Ferrell on movies like Anchorman and Talladega Nights. Like, he's a comedian. His background's in comedy in Chicago. I mean, so that's sort of an interesting choice, right? Does to he make to take the movie on. funny? He, well, he makes it funny, not in a, like, not really, not in a, like, funny, that's good. Uh, amazing not way, but, like, ha-ha. Like, ha, ha. Well, no, there are several laugh-out-loud moments, but one of the things he told me in the interview is that he thinks, you know, sort of from his background in comedy, like, one, one of the things that's brought him he really understands the audience like that's you have like to be successful in comedy particularly in sketch and improv comedy you really got to know your audience 
and you got to be able to like keep it entertaining mm -hmm. and so he definitely does that because I mean this could definitely be a dry story right it's about the housing bubble it's about a bunch of traders who CDOs, like dug swaps. through right and dug through mortgages and dug through spreadsheets to, to sort of see this pattern and, and, and see that there was a bubble um, before most other people were able to and I mean this this was something in the book Michael Lewis telling me he's great at this he tells the story in a really great way and a lot of it is very personality driven speaking of interesting people in the news these characters turned out to be really fascinating guys and McKay definitely picks up on that for the movie um, and then just he does you know there's, there are things you can do in the movie in a movie you can't necessarily do in a book and he also this is probably the most written thing about it but you know he interjects these these moments where the movie kind of pauses the narrative and then he brings out celebrities to explain concept, like these finance concepts. So Ooh. Selena Gomez is in a casino and she explains the concept of synthetic derivatives by like talking about betting on blackjack and people betting on her Fantastic. performance in blackjack. What I thought was kind of overall more interesting is just that Adam McKay is actually a really political guy. He's he's a he's a lefty. He has been quite involved, like sort of in following a lot of what's happened since the crisis in terms of banking regulations. Um, his website, Funny or Die, and has done some sort of advocacy videos for the Consumer Protection Agency and also for um, Obama's health care plan. Um, it's something that he like sort of takes a, a lay person's interest in probably more than most lay people. We but should have him on Alpha. Yeah, he's he was great. And he was just, he's really kind of, he's really smart and really opinionated about this. And, and an comes, FT fan, right? And an FT fan. <laughs> and it Plug. comes through and it comes through in the in the film because he gets it, but he also gets like why it might be alienating to other to people who aren't as familiar with it and then tells the story in a way that makes it not alienating. So. Oh, I can't wait to read the piece and see the movie. Yeah, so I highly recommend everyone go and see it. So I'm reading The Story of a New Name by Elena Franti, the second book in her four-part series, which you would never read based on the cover photo or the name of The Story of a New Name. The Italian author who we don't know the identity of is secret identity. Actually, Paris Review did an excellent interview with the unnamed author um, explaining motivations. But anyways, I've heard criticism in my book club, actually, that nothing happens. Right. But actually, I think Lots the book is, just is like life. life. Yep. Nothing happens and everything happens. Right. So I, I find that fascinating. So the book I'm reading now is Kathy Eden and Luke Schaefer's $2 a Day, Living on Almost Nothing in America. It's this really interesting look by two poverty researchers at uh, really extreme poverty uh, in, in, in the U.S. I mean, what's, what's, what's amazing is you think of the global poverty measure for the World Bank. They just shifted it up to $1.90 a day. And really, the idea that here in America, there are actually people who, who live on this. And you get this amazing tour through uh, urban America, through Chicago to, to rural Mississippi. Uh, where they talk to actual people who, who, who are living on $2 a day. Really interesting stuff, uh, really worth a read. And that's all we have this week. Thanks so much for listening. Go to ft.com slash alpha chat for show notes, links, and our guest recommendations. We'd love to hear your recommendations. You can call us at 917-551-5012, email us at alphachat at ft.com, or tweet me at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. And special treat, Cardiff comes back next week. We'll hear about his trip to Cuba. Amy Keene produces our show. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corian provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Brian, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.